Oh man, Crossing family, it is so good to be with you. It is Thanksgiving week and I am thankful for you and all the incredible work that God is doing all across this region. I want to welcome those of you joining out of different locations, those of you watching online, and those of you who are part of the Crossing Inside. Got to meet with a couple on Friday night who brought a report of what's happening at the Crossing Inside in Vandalia. Not all of the people who I'm about to mention go to our church, but some of them do. They had over 40 baptisms this past week in Vandalia. Isn't that incredible? I don't know how many of those are going to be crossing ones, but um, the fact that God's moving is great. I am getting ready to go celebrate Thanksgiving with my family. It's like the Hensel holiday. When you marry into the family, um, you have to forego Thanksgiving with your family. That's just part of the deal. But you get every other holiday. So you can go see your mom on, you know, 4th of July and Christmas and all the other ones, but for the, or Thanksgiving belongs to the Hensels, and it's going to be an epic celebration, I'm just telling you. Um, we went to Sam's Club, I don't like to brag, but we have a membership, and um, <laughs> I picked up three turkeys, uh, 12 racks of ribs, two briskets, and 120 pieces of chicken. So I'm going to be wheeled in here. Uh, sometime next week, but I'm, I'm leaving today, not coming back till a week from today, and I cannot wait to go. My boys are there right now, riding four-wheelers, trying to get their mom to buy camo. It's a redneck holiday, and we love it. Now, we've been in this series, uh, Handle with Care, and it's been talking about your heart, and there's this tagline that I probably should have done a little bit better job of highlighting because it's incredibly important to what we're going to be talking about today. If you look at this graphic, it's a really good graphic, great job. But right here, it says this, getting your heart right before it's too late. That if we don't get our hearts right now, it might be too late later. There are things that every single one of us are putting off, things that we know we're supposed to do, things we're supposed to own, behaviors that are supposed to change. And as Christians, we need to get our hearts right before it's too late. And people who don't have an intimate personal relationship with Jesus Christ, we're so glad that you're here. But I need you to know, it's important that you get your heart right before it's too late. Now I gotta be honest with you. Some of you, you probably brought a friend today and you're like, you should come to church, it's gonna be great. And because everybody could use a little bit of hope. This sermon is not one of those sermons that you walk away going, "Woo! so glad I came to church today. Because I'm going to take us down uh, a dark road to the dark places in our heart. The parts of our heart that we don't talk about, the parts of our heart that we maybe haven't turned over to Jesus, the parts of our heart that maybe we haven't even owned ourselves. But I think if we do it right, we'll be better for it. Because today, what I want to talk to you about is this. A heart that ignores God causes harm. There were a couple of kids in junior high and high school that were pretty rough on me. Um, there was one, we'll call him Timmy, and he had a crew of people. And while I was pretty sure that I could beat Timmy up when he was mean to me, I didn't believe that I could handle all of the people that he ran with. Then there was this other kid, we'll call him, or what I call the first one, Timmy? Okay, we'll call this one Tommy. And it seems like every day... Tommy would look for a way to inflict pain. Um, the most significant was I was uh, getting a, a drink of water, and when you're my size, a water fountain's down by your knees. 
And so I'm bending all the way over like this. And he came over and he smashed my head down on the metal, whatever thing that comes out. This piece, he put my head on it. And I remember getting ready to go to bed at night. And it was just always weighing on my mind, how am I going to navigate Timmy and Tommy tomorrow? And I would get proud of myself because I never retaliated. I never lost my anger. And it was kind of like a badge of honor. You know, Timmy and Tommy, they're just really bad kids. And then there's me. (laughs) You know, heart just dedicated to the Lord. However, there was this kid in my class, we'll call him Bob. And in my school, we all gathered in the cafeteria before school started, and they had round tables where eight chairs could be placed around them, and we would pack in 10 to 12 people around there every day before school started. And um, Brian would always be outside the circle. And the moment somebody would get up, Brian would like, just appear, desperate to be included. He wanted to have his own friend group. He wanted to have people to make memories with. But he was always on the outside. And then one night, me and a couple of my friends we decided to invite him to come hang out with us. And he showed up in his dad's work truck at my parents' house, and we started messing around. And I'm one of those people that when I get spun up, I'm pretty hard to slow down. Some of you guys... You've heard me like in a sermon say something I shouldn't have said, and you're like, yeah, well, when he gets spun up, you know, he's an idiot. He's our idiot, but he's an idiot. But uh, when I get spun up, I'm pretty hard to slow down. And so we all piled up into his dad's work truck, and he was driving, and we got him to go down the drive, and we took a right, and in about a quarter of a mile, uh, we got him to take a left, and we got to drive through this little gate, and then um, we got him to start driving down the train tracks. And then after we were sufficiently down the train tracks in his dad's work truck, we pulled out a mag flashlight in the rear and made it look like a train was coming in the rear view mirror, and we set off an air horn, and then we all acted a fool and pretend like we were incredibly scared for our lives, and he was in a position where he was trying to figure out how does he navigate an incoming train in his dad's work truck where there's no place to turn around, and you can imagine all of the drama unfolding in that. And then how do you navigate those pressures when you're in high school or is not well? And so the decisions you make to correct the position you're in are not ideal. And then we took the liberty of the chaos to act even more a fool. And we, um, we messed up his dad's truck. We messed up the interior, the exterior. And we messed up him. And after we were done, it was real quiet. 
And he drove back to my parents' house up the hill and said, would you guys please get out? And he drove home. That night, as I laid in bed, I realized I had been to Bob what Tommy and Timmy had been to me. Every single one of us, we have a spiritual enemy. He is trying hard to limit your impact, to rob you of your purpose, to dim your evangelistic light, to cause you pain, destroy your relationships, and your reputation. You hear me talk about this all the time. I love pointing to this verse. John 10, 10. This is Jesus talking. The thief, that's Satan, comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Jesus, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Every single one of you, Satan is looking for opportunities to steal, to kill, to destroy. And what I want to do is I want us to take a look at David's life. And my hope is by looking at this particular story, you will recognize the harm that you have caused, that I have caused, and do our best to avoid it in the future. It starts off innocently enough. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. The story starts off with David not doing what he was supposed to be doing. He wasn't doing something he wasn't supposed to do. He wasn't doing a bad thing. He just wasn't doing the thing he should have been doing. At a time when kings go off to war, King David stayed home. He stayed behind. David had lost sight of his role, his purpose, his mission. As a king, and since it's David, as a warrior king, he should have been leading the charge in battle. But instead, he stayed back. Maybe he was giving himself a pass. Maybe he was writing himself a permission slip. We've all been there. He's going, guys, I've earned it. I've deserved it. I mean, after all, remember Goliath? You guys just held back, and I went out there all by myself. You go on this battle. I'll stay behind. Have we ever done that? Have you ever done that? It's somebody else's turn. You write yourself a permission slip. It's not that big of one. But it's just enough. Man, this time, somebody else can serve in the ministry. Somebody else can set up for the event. Somebody else can lead the small group. Somebody else can. At the time when kings go out to war, somebody else can go. But that was all that Satan needed in David's life. Just a little bit of space. Just a little bit of entitlement. Just a little permission slip. Satan wants to get his foot in the door so he can take the whole house. Look what it says in 1 Peter chapter 5. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, 
looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. He's saying, stand your guard. Be alert. Satan is always attacking. And if you can give him just a little bit of room, he'll take the whole room. Now watch how this snowballs in David's life into a much bigger issue. Because Satan can take small drifts in your faith and use them to cause major disasters and destruction. Verse 2. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. The only reason David sees Bathsheba is he's not where he's supposed to be, doing what he's supposed to be doing. At a time when kings go out to war, David remained in Jerusalem, and he's walking on the roof, and he sees her. He may have seen her before, but there were men in the house before. There were men there to protect, to object, but those men are off to war. He sends to find out about her, and they come back and they tell us three things about her. She has a name. She has a father. She has a husband. She's someone's daughter. She is someone's wife. The painful truth is the people that you and I have sinned against have a father and a mother and a sister and a brother who are carrying around a broken heart. To those you are being mean to, bullying, watching when you consume porn, gossiping, body shaming, hear me, there are tears that have soaked the floor of their house because of our actions. I wonder what it was like when Bob got the phone call to come hang out with us. Did his mom finally feel like the son that she was hoping would have relational connections? All those prayers were finally coming true. I wonder if his dad was like, take the nice truck. I wonder if they were going, he's not going to be alone anymore. And then he came home. Have you ever wondered if the people you're mean to, harsh to, condescending to, are your interactions with them making them a better wife or a worse one? A better father or a worse one? 
Isn't it sad that we act on our best behavior around people we don't care about and we take it out on the people we care about the most? And so parents and and kids deal with someone who's in so much pain because of the pain that we have caused them. The reason David felt like he could invite her over was because her husband was off to war. Her husband was doing what he was supposed to be doing. And David was not doing what he was supposed to do. That little bit of space, that little bit of entitlement. Well, when it's all over, now there's a baby. A woman who was more than likely forced to have sex against her will with someone powerful now has to deal with a baby that does not belong to her husband. The joy of being pregnant is overshadowed by the logistics of what do I do now? How's her husband going to feel when she comes home? How is the community going to respond to her? Verse 6. So David sent this word to Joab. Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was. How the soldiers were. And how the war was going. David's asking these questions. Because at the time when kings go out to war, David stayed in Jerusalem. Let's keep going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace. And a gift from the king was sent after him. You guys are going to fall in love with Uriah. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all of his master's servants and did not go down to his house. You're going, why did he do that? Check this out. David was told, Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? He tells him, Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in the tents. And my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house and eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, stay here one more day and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day And the next, at David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. Uriah is just such a bad-to-the-bone dude. David is trying to execute a carefully crafted cover-up campaign. It's a full-blown damage control. He brings her husband home, and he sends him to spend the night with her, so that way he'll think that the kid belongs to him. But he doesn't. He has too much integrity to write himself a permission slip 
all of the men that I serve with are sleeping in the open country, living in tents, and you want me to go home to my wife? Can't do it. I'll sleep on the steps of the palace. David's like, are you kidding me? Look at the contrast between him and David. At the time when kings go out to war, David stays home. Uriah comes home, gets a permission slip from David to go home to his wife and said, can't turn it in. Now think even deeper here. David, you know this, is trying to get Uriah to think that the baby is his. But what he's also doing is he is introducing a lie into the marriage. Because Bathsheba will know that it's not. Forcing her to live with a lie in her own marriage. Imagine Bathsheba if the plan had worked. Watching Uriah playing baseball in the backyard. And coming in before dinner and going, boy, he, he throws just like me. And her knowing, no, he doesn't. Watching Uriah go and work incredibly hard to provide a better future for his children, for his child, knowing that the future he's working for isn't actually his. That doesn't work. So David goes, all right, obviously I can't compete with this man when he's sober-minded. So I'm going to invite him over. And I'm just going to keep pouring drinks until I get him drunk. But Uriah, even when he is drunk, doesn't give up on his plan. David is trying to use all of his power to turn everybody around him into puppets in his cover-up. However, Uriah, even when he is in a drunken state, will not break his commitment to his fellow soldiers. And you know this. If David was in his right mind, he would have loved this about Uriah. He would have been like, my dog, you're just too bad to the bone. Won't come inside, won't sleep with your wife. You're not coming home till the men come home. My man. David would have loved this about him. But when you're trying to cover up sin, somebody with integrity is hard to deal with. For David, because he's in cover-up mode, because he's sinning, everything changes. You see things differently. Up becomes down, left becomes right, integrity becomes inconvenient. So what does David do? Well, verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. His two previous attempts to cover up his sin have been unsuccessful. So now he takes matters even further and he goes down an even darker alley to a place that nobody in their right mind would go. He sends Uriah 
with his own death sentence to the commander of the army. And David knew that he wouldn't read it because of how Uriah had been upright in his dealings with him so far. Verse 16. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. David has now gone from being one who lusts to one who commits adultery to one who tries to conceal sin through deception to getting someone drunk to now having someone killed. Verse 26. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Look at the harm that David's sin has caused. He took advantage of a woman while her husband was away fighting. He ends up murdering the husband of this child's mother. And then he loses the respect of Joab, his army commander. Imagine being Joab, being commissioned to go out and fight the war, lead the charge on David's behalf. He'd heard stories of David's conquests. He grew up with him with a poster of David on his wall. He was his hero. I mean, people have written songs about David's conquests. Saul has killed thousands, but David his ten thousands. And now Joab gets to be a leader in that guy's army. Only to read a letter about having Uriah the Hittite killed. There's a tough truth we have to swallow here. A heart led by desire leads you down roads you never wanted to walk and turns you into someone you never thought you would you end up doing things you thought you would never do and then because your heart is not turned towards God and filled with the Holy Spirit you come up with all kinds of solutions in your flesh and so you go deeper and deeper down the road turn after turn dark alley after dark alley until when you find yourself looking in the mirror you no longer recognize who you are some of you, you've started this innocently enough. The decisions you made at the moment weren't all that bad, but over time, the compounding interest, the snowball effect, they've taken you into the darkest of places. What started out on Instagram is now taking you to Pornhub. What started out on Snapchat is now taking you to cutting and self-arm. What started off as a joke now turned into bullying and body shaming. And you find yourself with a life you never thought you'd have to live, making choices you never thought you'd have to make. I'm asking that you give me grace here for just a second, because I, I am not trying to be condescending or make light of anybody who would put themselves in this category right now. I, I just want to make a bigger point in a second. Right now, it is fashionable in our culture 
for everybody to be a victim. Everybody dons the victim identity. And it is an incredible identity because it allows you to write yourself an awful lot of permission slips. And it allows you to assign blame to a lot of people, just not you. It allows you to bypass the consequences of your own decisions. It allows you to frame, make a mental framework for how to process all of the adversity that life throws at you. And so everybody is a victim. They aren't as wealthy as they were supposed to be, and their parents weren't as nice as they were supposed to be. Now, let me be clear before I get in emails. Hear me, hear me, hear me. I am in ministry. We have an incredible team of people who do ministry at this church, and we know that there are way too many of you who have been victims of absolute horrible circumstances. And I am not trying to discount that at all. I'm just asking you to push a little bit further. Push past the attention of being the victim. Push past the pity that you get from being the victim. And ask yourself a darker, deeper, tougher question. Am I also an abuser? Am I also a bully? Am I also the one who has power over some people and I'm using it to step on them even though Jesus died for them? You see, last week, David was the victim who needed to figure out how to forgive Saul. But in this sermon, David is the abuser and Uriah and Bathsheba are the victims. In the last sermon, you and I, we were the victims that needed to learn how to forgive. But in this sermon, we're the abusers who need to repent. I'm not asking you to look at this sermon through the eyes of Bathsheba, the victim. I'm asking you to look at this story through the eyes of David, the abuser. Because if we spend our whole lives allowing ourselves to just be the victim, we will fail to recognize all the people that we have hurt, all of the people that we are hurting. Who are the people in your life that are in pain right now because of you? because of how you treated them, because of how you treat them. How many people got a bad view of Jesus because we have the audacity to call ourselves Christians, but we acted more like the ones who crucified Jesus? Who are the people in your sphere who you've lied to, gossiped about, shamed, abused, spoke hurtful words, reacted, became violent. How have you treated your parents, your kids? 
How have you treated people who have less than you? People that struggle more than you. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord is not just a verse about David. It's a verse about me. The things that Clayton had done displeased the Lord. We're not always the victim. Sometimes we're the abuser. And what we have done displeases the Lord. It breaks his heart. We end up stepping on the very people that Jesus came to save. We end up pushing away the very people that Jesus is trying to pursue. We end up hurting the very people that Jesus came to heal. We end up shaming the very people that Jesus came to save. So I was in ministry, and I was in Macomb, and I could not shake the events of that night. And our church was launching campuses. And I didn't grow up too far from here. And I'm going, there might be a day where we have a church in Fort Madison. And you know, the history of my life has kind of been, you're either a really big fan or you want to protest me. Like I don't have a whole lot of people that are in between. Like I really don't know how I feel about Clayton. People have an opinion. And uh, I'm going, when we go to Fort Madison, there's going to be protesters. And I couldn't shake it. I felt so much guilt over how I behaved that night that I tried to track down Bob. And so 10 years plus after this night had occurred, I felt like I had to call him and own what I did. And so I got his number. And I called him. I said, hey, Bob, it's Clayton. And like an idiot, I said, well, you might not remember. He said, I remember. And I said, I'm a Christian. I'm a pastor. And you didn't deserve what I did to you that night. Nobody does. And I am so, so sorry. And he gave me a gift I did not deserve. He said, Ah, oh, Clayton, I forgive you. Sometimes we're not just the victim. Sometimes we're the bad person in another person's story. And that impacts our ability to help them find the one who changes everything. And sometimes 
We carry around the weight of our sin, and we don't own it, and we don't give it to Jesus. And that is why an intimate, personal relationship with Jesus Christ is so incredibly necessary. And I hope you'll consider one as we move to a time of decision. So normally I talk to those of you who are here who don't have a relationship with Jesus yet, and I just want to flip it up for just a second. So Christians, you know, you're used to tuning me out. Tune in for a second. Christians, in God's game plan, you and I are supposed to be a city on a hill, a lamp on a stand. People are supposed to take notice of us. There's supposed to be something different, a guiding light about us. And I'm guessing that there are bits and pieces in your past. Bits and pieces in your present. Where your behavior and your actions have gotten in the way of God's plan to redeem the world. And normally, uh, you know, you guys are really good. You know, when we get done with the sermon, you guys love to get right with God, and a lot of you will come to the steps and get down on your knees and pray, and you're going to have the opportunity to do that about whatever you're going through and whatever you need to do. But there might be some of you today that uh, your response is you need to call someone. And you need to say, I'm sorry. You don't need to justify it. Do you think it would have mattered to him? To Bob if I said, well, listen, man, you know, Tommy and Timmy have just been really mean to me. So the way I processed it was I just decided I'd be really mean to you. So I just wanted you to know why it happened. Do you think you'd be like, oh, well, thanks for clearing it up. I just needed to own my part. And there might be nothing more powerful than them knowing that Christians are just built different. That when we screw up, we own it. And we say we're sorry for it. The great news is, Christians, hear me. The Bible says that when we go to God and ask for forgiveness, he is faithful and just to forgive us. That he will meet us in that moment and bring about the healing that you and I desperately need. So if you're a Christian, I'm pushing you out of your comfort zone to go, what kind of business do you need to do? And more than likely, some of your business is not with God, it's with people that God died for. Now, to those of you who don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, let let me level with you here for a second. You are in the process of hurting people. Every day as you move through life, there are ripples going out and people are navigating the pain that you cause. And you know it and you see it and you wish that you could put Humpty Dumpty back together again, but you can't do that. However, when you begin an intimate personal relationship with Jesus Christ, he not only makes you new, but he gives you his Holy Spirit And this Holy Spirit produces fruit in your life. The kind of life 
the kind of fruit that the people around you desperately need and want and allow you to make the difference that deep down you know you want to make. And I know for many of you, or maybe just some of you, probably a very few of you, because most of you are just better than me. When I preach a sermon like this, you know exactly what it is in your life. You know the memory, you know the story, you know what it is. For 10 years, I carried the story of Bob around like a weight This past uh, summer, we took you through Romans. And in Romans chapter five, verse eight, one of the top five verses in all of scripture, it says this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And the reason that verse is so meaningful to me is the worst I have ever felt about me is the night I ruined Bob. That was me at my lowest, darkest, and I realized what I was capable of. And if any of you had ever seen me on that night, you would run from this place. While Clayton was ruining Bob's life, Christ died for us. That is why we're such big fans of Jesus and we proudly proclaim the gospel because when we were at our worst, our God was at his best. And I tell you that so that way you know whatever it is that you are navigating right now will not keep you from God unless you let it because God is ready right here, right now, to introduce the hope and the healing and the forgiveness and the new life that can only be found in him. And if you'll take it and you'll place your life, your sin, your situation in his hands, you won't regret it. And in just a moment, when I get done praying, there's gonna be people right over there by the baptistry that would love a chance to talk with you so you can find what we found in him. Would you guys stand with me? God, I just wanna see you move. I wanna see you move in hearts and lives. God, I know there's pieces of us that we've turned over to you, but there's also pieces of us that we're too afraid to talk about and too afraid to let you in. God, I'm praying that you'd give people the courage to trust you with the darkest parts of who they are. 
God, that they could see that you're good and you're faithful and you redeem and you restore. You can make things new. So God, do a work in us right here, right now. In your name I pray, amen.